Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Wayne Dusso, who's a VP at AWS. So Wayne, why don't we start this by you giving us a little overview of your background? So first off, thank you and good morning to you. Uh, good morning to everybody. My name is Wayne Dusso and, and my background is uh, I've been a, a systems developer, if you would, a high-tech plumber for my entire life um, and I love it. I was educated as a computer science major and a systems engineering major and I've been employing those skills for the last 30 years. Awesome, awesome. So talk to me about what you're doing today at Amazon. So uh, at Amazon, I'm responsible for a number of our businesses, uh, specifically for our file service businesses, uh, our edge compute and edge storage businesses, and our data service businesses, which really is a a catch-all for uh, data transfer, data protection, and data management services. And I am also responsible for our AWS Boston Regional Development Center, which I opened uh, roughly uh, eight years ago, and it's been a, a fantastic uh, experience in building the Boston office for, for Amazon. So tell me a little bit about the challenges today at Amazon with your job. Oh, that's, that's a great question. You know, Amazon and AWS specifically, in the years that I've been here now, which is uh, about eight years, the growth has been tremendous. It's been an amazing experience. We've been able to grow the business, but grow solutions for customers during that time. And growth and scale is by far one of the most challenging things that we uh, encounter every single day. You know, the cloud unto itself is really interesting in that it's global, it scales and grows rapidly uh, every day, every year. But when you then take that back to what you need to do on a product basis and what you need to do with your teams, being able to scale your teams and scale your leadership, scale your product leadership is, is really challenging. And it's been a fun challenge. So let's step back a little bit and tell me, how did you get into product management? That's a great story. Accidentally, uh, generally is how I would uh, refer to it. I was a practicing engineer for years, went from being a practicing engineer to an engineering manager. And at one point in my career, there was an opportunity to help the business by becoming a business development person, uh, not a product manager. And so now I was outside of the technology and product development space and looking in from the outside and realizing that we weren't building the products that our customers needed. And as an engineer, I really never had that exposure. Didn't talk to customers every day. And as a technologist, thought we were building the right products based on the technologies we had. As a business development person, I was talking to the product managers, the the engineers, the customers, and realizing that there was such an opportunity to build better products by doing a better job of listening to our customers and our partners. So I ended up moving from a business development role to a product management role when there was a need to lead an organization building at the time network attached storage. And so it was a little bit of a, you know, a winding path to get there. But once I had the role as a product leader, I started to realize how much more value I could bring to my customers, knowing technology, understanding customers, 
and being able to bring those together in ways which today seems obvious uh, then, it was a little unusual. Well, tell me a little bit more about how you got into Amazon. So that's uh, about eight years ago. I decided to pursue what I believe to be the right path uh, for our customers. And specifically, I was a big believer since the mid-90s that customers didn't really want to manage their storage or their data, their information. It was most, one of the most important assets they had, but managing it is hard. You know, it's, you got to protect your data, you got to back up your data, you got to worry about where your data is. So I started looking at different models. You know, I, I was a box producer for years, storage arrays and, and network attached storage, and realized that the cloud model seemed more appropriate. Um, if customers could centralize their data and have somebody manage that for them and distribute their processing. And you can look at distributed processing as, a, as simple as your iPhone. You know, you're, you're processing right in your hand, but your data isn't there. Your data is somewhere else. And to me, that was the right model. It was the easy model, simple model for customers. It was powerful. So when I looked around at what I could do, that's when I started looking at AWS. And back in roughly 2010, 2011, when I started looking, cloud wasn't that big a thing at the time, even though Amazon had been in the business for about four or five years at that point. Uh, so I decided to take a chance um, and really... When I met the people at AWS, specifically the leadership, um, I was convinced that it was going to be an amazing place to be. And I haven't been let down. It's been an amazing place to be. Awesome. So take us through a little bit of your career at Amazon, how it's changed, problems you've had to solve, you know, technical challenges you've had. We'd love to hear a little bit more about it. So one of the most interesting challenges that I faced when I came to Amazon that I hadn't faced in my earlier in my career is most of my career was about taking technology and producing what you could for customers. And often it was okay. You didn't necessarily produce the greatest product, but you produced a good product. When I got to Amazon and started learning, if you would, the, the culture, and one of the things that has been true across all of Amazon, not just AWS, and you'll hear you know, Jeff Bezos say this from time to time, you know, our mantra is the most you know, customer-centric company on earth. And everything starts with thinking about what does the customer need? What, what is the customer's problem? Not what the customer always tells you, because sometimes they tell you about solutions and not necessarily about their problems. So when I got here, working on the customer problems and then trying to figure out how to build the right solution for them feels like a natural statement. But doing that is really hard because often you run into problems as you're building these solutions and as a technologist, you'll want to take a path which perhaps it's easier, perhaps it's safer, but it's not necessarily as good for the customer. So I learned pretty quickly in building my first product, which is was Amazon Elastic File System, to do things which we thought were was impossible. They were important to the customer, but we couldn't figure out how to make the technology work. That took a lot of, you know, if you would, doubling down. And, and really having a lot of hard conversations between myself and then, you know, the, the early team to build what eventually became a really awesome service in EFS that customers have grown to love. So let's dig into one part you mentioned, and I think we talked a little bit there about culture. So let's talk about curating a product management culture. How can product managers create a culture where everyone's actively thinking about the product and also integrating the customer voice in the appropriate way? Yeah. You know, we, we talk about 
uh, on the development side, very popular term, it's been in vogue for years, uh, DevOps. Uh, we talk about you know developers owning the full experience of what they build, what they deploy, and what they operate. And you know you you hear a lot uh, today about you know product ops and how the same model for product managers can apply as DevOps does to developers. And that's really sort of the end-to-end -end ownership of the entire product experience. And, you know, again, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record because it's so important. If you start off thinking about what the customer needs and having lots of dialogue with customers, using anecdotes, using data, and then marrying that with the technology that exists today or at that moment, and owning not just the definition of the product, but owning the development, being with the developers, understanding the challenges they have, understanding how to iterate with them, understanding how the product gets deployed to the customers and the, being deeply involved in the customer experience. And a lot of that is done through dialogue, but also a lot of it is done through proactive instrumentation of products that we deploy to our customers so that you're constantly collecting data points on how is it for the customer. And if you live in that cycle, you are immersed in your customer's world and you start to build a, a culture, which is a very virtuous cycle. You know, it's interesting you talk about both data and the conversations with the customer. You know, tell me why you need both. Well, for those of us who've been building product for years, you know, customer conversations are invaluable. But customers will often talk to you about the solutions they envision versus the problems that they have. And this is human nature. And when they do that, it can skew what you end up building. You end up building what they ask you to build and then you, you deliver it. It doesn't really solve their problem because they have a, a somewhat different view of the solution and the problem set than may be true. So if you talk to customers and you actually figure out what they're thinking and then you collect data on what you deliver and how they're using the product, you can start to see whether those things are aligned or whether there's a difference between what you're hearing and what you're observing. So it's a little bit of science uh, to soft science in that regard, but you end up learning a ton from the data that comes in. And more importantly, and, and really uh, this is kind of fun, you share that data with the customers so that they are uh, along with you on that journey and they start to learn how they're actually using the products that you're, you know, you're building for them. Yeah. So both that's a powerful point you just mentioned that not only are you capturing the data, but you're sharing it with customers. Uh, talk to me about how that's impacted some of the customer relationships. So, you know, especially in, in, in this day and age, like people are interested. Sometimes they're more than interested. Sometimes they may even be concerned with the, you know, with collecting data and data is a, a sacred thing. You've you got to make sure that, you know, whatever you're collecting, it's, clear, uh, you're upfront about what you're collecting. It's always held in the highest regard in terms of security and who, who can see it and what you can do with it. But once you build that trust relationship with the customer in terms of the data that you're collecting, you share that data with them. It provides just aha moments that are just joyful uh, to have with a customer. As an example, and I'll just go to my technical domain for, for one moment because it's uh, appropriate. In building storage systems, file systems, and so on, you know, one of the things that customers will always say is it doesn't perform fast enough or doesn't, it doesn't provide enough performance. 
And, and when you ask the question, well, how much do you need? The answer is, I don't really know. I just know it's not enough. So it's very difficult to, to know whether you're building the right product for a customer if they can't give you the data you need to put you know, four corners around the box, so to speak. Once you start collecting data from customers on how they're using the product and you provide that back to them, it starts to become an aha moment for them in terms of what they really need. And sometimes they change how they're using the product. Sometimes you'll improve the product. Sometimes you end up in a much better place in terms of how they build their applications and how those applications serve their business. So it becomes, again, a very virtuous cycle, a really collaborative exercise with the customer. I find it particularly fun to do. It, it, it brings a smile to my face. Awesome. Awesome. And now let's take that as a jumping point to jump into innovation. Talk to me about creating a culture for innovation, something Amazon's known for. And, and how do you build for that and build for that at scale? Well, what I've learned uh, really in the last roughly decade of building product for customers is innovation really does start from understanding their problems. I would say in you know prior decades of building product, I would look at innovation from a technology lens and see technologies coming down to the pike and innovate around those. So if you would in, in sort of uh, feel the dreams, you know, if you build it, they will come. And the reality is that that doesn't really ever happen. Like a lot of product failures are in taking a technology and, and building what you believe to be uh, something important and realizing that it just doesn't work for your customer base or any customer base. So what I've found in the last decade is innovation starts with listening to the customer's problems. Again, focusing on getting to the problem set and not their perceived solution set. And then looking at the technologies that either exist now or technologies that you can start to leverage and understanding how can we build the best possible solution for them, knowing their problem, knowing where the technology is today. And sometimes you don't use the greatest technology to have the most innovative products. You know, there's those magic moments where the technology and the problems have come together in a way which is amazing. But most often you're taking technology, which is, you know, uh, pretty tried and true or pretty close to tried and true, but building amazing and innovative solutions because you've crafted that technology in a way that really does address the pain points they have. So yep. that's really how I look at innovation today, more so than you know, being based on technology or some other non-customer first approach. Now, tell me how this all ties together. You have a, a phrase, highly disruptive value for the customer, right? Uh, which is an interesting phrase, and you'll have to tell me how you came up with that. But um, tell me how that ties in with that. We've talked about the product management culture. We've talked about innovation. How does that tie together with this highly disruptive value phrase that you have to use? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that phrase. Um, it did take me a while to get there because using a uh, economical set of words to convey how I want people to think is always a challenge. E each of those words matter. Um, the first word is a little bit hyperbolic, and I don't like using hyperbolic words, but it was important in this particular case because I wanted highly to be a mental springboard for people. I didn't want them to just think of, you know, the words disruptive value. Uh, they're a little, it's a little flat. But highly disruptive value gets people to ask the question, well, what do you mean by highly? And that becomes a very interesting conversation around, you know, is this an order of magnitude change? You know, I can offer a disruptive value, but is it really an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude changes? Think big, you know, think around the corners, see what, you know, possibilities exist based on what you know. Disruptive in this particular context 
is really about that order of magnitude. You know, if you're offering customers value and you're not striving for an order of magnitude improvement, by the time you have it in the market, by the time customers are using it, it may not be that valuable. So I look for things that are really super disruptive, order of magnitude, maybe even a stretch of two orders of magnitude. Let's give you an example. In the case of Highly, I, I mentioned earlier about this product that I first built called Elastic File System. Up to that point, no one had built a file system in the cloud that had global reach that was fully elastic. That is, it could grow and shrink and you were only charged for the, for the bytes that you used and that was it. It's hard to do. And I was told by all of my principal engineers at the time, you know, it's, they gave me there's three uh, parameters. It doesn't matter what they are, but you can have two. You can't have all three. And the one that you can't have is elastic if you want all this other stuff. So that was part of the highly. Let's like go beyond anything you've ever done before. S3 is a good example of disruptive change. Being, you know, serverless computing is a, a good example of a disruptive value. You know, they, they offer an order of magnitude change in some, you know, some parameter. Often it's speed or, or cost. So those are what I mean around highly disruptive. And in terms of value, at the end of the day, if customers love it, if it's solving their problems, then, then you're at the right price, then you're delivering value to them. So that's how I came up with that term. And talk to me about, uh, well, let's let's jump into that example first. I mean, I'd love to hear about how you build that out in the organization. And maybe this answers the question if I just ask you about, you know, the elastic story, right? So you have, you have people telling you you can't get all three. You obviously got elastic since it's in the name. So talk to me about that process of, of getting the impossible. Yeah, so um, I would like to tell you that we were 100% successful in our first iteration, but we weren't. We had to give up on something, and that something at the time was having the best performing file system on the market. So Elastic required that uh, it be more durable, more available than, say, a single box file server. And in doing so, we ended up giving up on some performance. Now, since the launch of the, of the service years ago, we figured out how to address all three points on that triangle. But you had to make a choice. And this is something that product owners, product developers, product managers have to do every single day. And this is what I was referring to earlier when we talked about product operations. You know, in my early days of product, you would write a spec, you write a PRD or whatever it was called in your particular company, and you would give it to the engineers and the engineers would, you know, say, I can't do it. And they'd come back with something, right? Being a full product owner, that's not your life, right? Your life is writing the, the spec, if you wouldn't, in our particular case, we call writing a, a press release and, a, and an FAQ, a frequently asked questions document, which is uh, designed to represent what we will tell the customer the day it launches. So you have to actually have a very clear understanding of what you're building, and that's what you give to engineering. But then that becomes an iterative dialogue because as they're going through the FAQ and building out their designs, they have questions. And this is a good example of a question that came up in the early days, which is, Wayne, if it performs like X, is that good enough? And the answer was, yes, it will be good enough. Now, I can tell you that I didn't make all the right decisions. I made some mistakes in some of those. But because we made them together and because we were very uh, forthright with our customers on what we had, it allowed us to iterate. And, you know, that took a, a few cycles. But that full ownership from end to end allowed us to have those conversations and produce the right product for, for folks.
Awesome. So I think we've talked a good bit about your time at Amazon, but I'd, I'd like to talk about your time prior to Amazon at EMC and, and at, I think it was called Digital at the time. What was mm-hmm. that like? How did you grow the product teams there? Well, um, yeah, those are both treasured experiences. I, I, I have not, I've been a lucky guy. Um, all, I haven't had many jobs, kind of old school. I haven't jumped around from, from too many places because every place I've been at, I've had a really great experience. And, and that was, those experiences haven't always been all positive. Like some of the experiences were, were a little less than positive, but they were great learning experiences nonetheless. Uh, I, so I cut my teeth at Digital Equipment Corporation, as it's affectionately known, I'm sure some of your listeners, as DEC. And DEC at the time was the second largest uh, computer company in the world, only second to uh, another three-letter acronym called IBM. And in DEC, I, I really uh, wasn't a product person. I was, that's where I learned how to cut my teeth as an engineer. But it's really where I cemented, unbeknownst to me, cemented the notion of ownership. In those days, there was no such thing as being a coder or a developer. You own the product. You own a very small team. Uh, the first product I ever built was a device that attached to this nascent new technology called Ethernet. And it allowed uh, computer terminals, which nobody knows what those are today, to communicate over Ethernet as opposed to communicating over uh, essentially telephone lines. And uh, there was a wonderful gentleman who was the founder of DEC called Ken Olson. Uh, and Ken Olson was probably one of the greatest leaders I've ever met, second only to some Dick Egan who started EMC and, and Andy Jassy, who's the CEO for uh, AWS. So I've been a lucky guy in terms of the execs I've, I've been around. And what DEC allowed me to understand is full product ownership. You know, you, you designed, you wrote, you tested, you supported, and you lived under the bridge you built because we used the products that we actually designed and developed. And that got me to understand early in my career, what it meant to be a customer. Because every morning when I logged into my little computer terminal that I used to, to write code on, I was using my product. And if it didn't work and it didn't work well, I knew it. So one of my first things in the morning wasn't necessarily working on what I was going to do next. It would, be, it would be working on what's broken. So I'd always be operating in that sense. So DEC was a wonderful place to learn how to do that. But as, a, as an engineer, I've, I never saw a customer. I didn't even know a customers that they existed. And when I moved over to EMC, EMC was a much different company. Uh, the first thing that happened when I got there, I was handed a pager. And uh, I was told at the time that that pager is always to be with you because we are always at the beck and call of our customers because we built systems that ran the airlines and ran the banks and ran the insurance companies. And if they ever had a problem, we needed to be on it. And all of those systems called home, which was a very novel thing at the time. So there I learned what it meant to not only build product, but to listen to customers. And that's really where I started my product journey. And it's where I first became a product manager. And if we go back to what we talked about earlier in in this conversation, that's where I really learned how to marry technology, the customer, and how to build a practical product. And it's, it's really where I started to learn how to become a general manager as well, because once I understood that, I couldn't go back to being just an engineer or just an engineering manager or just a product manager. It was really important to me at that point to own the full problem for our customers and to own the technical side and the product side, which is what I do today. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm really privileged to have that type of role because it's a, it's a ton of fun. 
Now, I, I think you, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you'd argue that the, the culture at Amazon is stronger, especially the product culture than it was at EMC and, and DEC. You know, does that have some impact on why, you know, the level of success that Amazon has achieved is maybe greater than the other two organizations? That's a great, you know, that's a, that's a really strong question. It's a really great question. And, and we talked earlier about culture. If I were to have, if I had to pick one characteristic or one attribute of why Amazon AWS does so well, and the other two companies, by the way, did really, really well. They were great companies, but it's something happened. It was an inflection point for both of those companies. The inflection point was that their culture started to erode as they grew. Dex culture led by Ken was a fantastic product culture, but as the company grew and Ken was no longer in the picture, the company started to become less product focused and more quarterly focused. EMC, Dick Egan was a great leader, very customer focused company, less so on product, more so on customers, which was actually quite good. But over time, especially when 2001 happened and you know the economy got soft, the company started changing, leaders changed, and the culture became, again, focused on quarterly results, not focused on product or the customer. If you look at uh, Amazon, Amazon has gone through the, you know, the, the various bubbles that we've seen over the course of the last 25 years. And it stayed true to who it is because it stays true to its culture. And I don't want to get you know, too deep into uh, that conversation and, and bore you with it. But by and large, the culture of focusing in on customers first, and I've been in conversations with you know, junior engineers and the most senior executives when in the conversation, somebody simply will say, well, how does that benefit the customer? And if you want to see a room stop, stop anything, stop arguing, stop wondering, stop wasting time, ask the question, how does this decision impact our customer? And you will recenter the conversation so quickly on where it should be versus other things that could influence your decision making. So how do I see Amazon as being different? Throughout its history, it stayed very true to its culture, and that culture is centered around the customer. And that's kept it on a very straight path, if you would, on doing what's right. Even when, whether employees or Wall Street or some other you know, influence tries to move you in a different direction, it allows you to stay steady. Yeah, I mean, that, that's particularly impressive at scale. What, what do you think has enabled that to happen at Amazon where there's been struggles at, at some of the companies you mentioned at scale? Is it really kind of that consistent senior leadership, that executive leadership? Is it other things, a combination of factors? It's a combination of factors. Um, I'll start with senior leadership because it, it is important. We can see in our world today that leadership is not optional. It's super important. But what do our leaders do? You know, our leaders can't lead the details of what thousands of products, thousands of, if you would, P&Ls need to worry about every day or owners of those P&Ls need to worry about every day. So what those leaders do is they ensure that the culture of the company remains solid. They, if you would, are anti-entropy Avengers, right? They're always looking for entropy within the culture. And when they see it, they point it out. And they don't point it out in a in any way which is threatening or any way which is uh, any way demeaning, it becomes a conversation. We, they ask questions and those questions are very direct in a meritocracy. They're very direct. And 
the ownership that each PL owner, the ownership that each service owner, each product owner has over their space is complete. Once you own a space, your job is to make sure that you build a team and you build a culture within that team that reflects the rest of the company and that you drive that into your leadership through the mechanisms you use to ensure in your world that you too are an anti-entropy avenger. Right? And I make that term up. It's not an official term. It's, I kind of like it. Uh, and that's how I see myself. I have a cape and a mask and I, I run around and I do this stuff. So why is it important? Because if I did nothing else, I, and I truly believe this, if I did nothing else every single day, but ensure that I have a healthy culture, a culture that scales as we bring on more owners and more leaders, I will have ensured that those people can be successful. And as a result, the entire organization that I'm responsible for will be successful. And of course, that rolls up to the entire company. Now, you know, we live in a little bit of a different world right now because of this pandemic. How has that affected the ability to maintain culture? Have you seen impact because of that? And how have you adjusted? I mean, I definitely hear about people that have had, you know, really strong in-person cultures, and now all of a sudden they're forced to go remote. Any advice for them? I know I, I just threw a lot of different questions at yeah, you. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. It's a real-time question. And, and, you know, here we are six months into, you know, somebody will listen to this podcast years from now and wonder what we're talking about. But, you know, here we are six months into the COVID-19 pandemic. And we all of us thought it was going to be, you know, two months. Then we thought six months. And here we are now saying it's at least a year uh, before we, we all get back to what we think is normal. And it will be, never be the same normal. It will be something different. And what we started doing in the early days, and, and this is a very, um, I'm sure other companies do it as well, but we're a data focused company. Like we collect data on everything because we're metrics driven and we measure by the second in the penny. So we know how to collect a lot of data. And we started collecting data on everything. How are you? We, we send out surveys every day and we ask people questions, everything from how's their, how's their team to how they're doing, to how their desk is, how their chair is, like, is it working for them? So we're, we, we started collecting a lot of data on, on that. We started to understand how if people were being productive, if productivity is being challenged. We gave them lots of tools. Uh, we gave them a lot of tools around, you know, video capability and, and whiteboarding capability. And I will tell you so far, six months in, that the productivity is actually really good and the spirits are really good. There are some people who love working from home uh, and it's fun to watch. Like, you know, people become very, um, their human side is now something that we all are way more comfortable with. Uh, you know, their kids, you know, jumping up and down like pogo sticks behind them as they're having a video call and it not being annoying, but it being real. Or, you know, we have a leader whose cat loves to talk while he's on video chats and, you know, we just, you know, the cat's not part of the meeting. So uh, I think that, you know, this is, we're going to go back to something that feels a little bit more uh, like it did before the pandemic started. But I think we've become a lot more, um, our humanity has grown as a function of this, our our understanding that working from home for certain folks is super helpful. And some people really want to go back to the office. They don't want to be at home anymore. <laughs> they, they really do want to get back together. So what do I think? I don't think that everybody working from their homes and talking uh, or speaking on video every day is going to be our new normal. Humans like to be next to one another. Like they actually do enjoy each other's company and it does matter. 
But we'll, what we will do is find a lot more versatility in how we work. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And it has been interesting seeing a lot more of the human side, like you mentioned, uh, you know, as a, an occasional angel investor, being able to see what people's home lives are like, right. And get like a, a feeling for how they deal with, you know, the unexpected, the chaos, the interruptions, uh, and how it makes them, you know, it makes them feel. You get to see a different aspect of people than you might see in a more polished setting, you know, both from an employee, a boss, uh, you know, a partner perspective. It, it's been very interesting, I would say. I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I do what I do for a living because I really love people. Like, you know, people can be really difficult, but at the end of the day, they can be the most joyful thing as well. And I enjoy doing what I do because I, I really do love people, love to build teams. And when you start to understand people at a greater depth, it gives you much more respect for who they are holistically. I just think it it opens up so many doors, just deeper collaboration. So I I would never wish, you know, this six months on anyone or any economy or any country or any company. But I will say that if you're handed some lemons, like I think there are, there is some lemonade to be made out of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think we, you know, being exposed to new situations, especially when they're forced on us, we're going to learn new things. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about product managers. You know, when you're hiring in in product management, what do you look for? You know, talk to me about the technical and other soft skills that you look for and what's most important. Yeah, this is an area which is always evolving for me. I probably changed a lot in my last decade on how I think about product managers. There's always, in the early days, we always indexed on their skills, on their immediate knowledge, and a lot less on their softer skills. And today, I find uh, much more of a balance uh, in how I think about who will make a successful product manager. And if I had to give percentages and weigh one set of skills over the other today, I will go with 51% soft skills and 49% knowledge and technical skills. And that equation looked quite different years ago. And why is that? Well, if we think about being a full owner of the product, if we think about being a primary interface to the customer, if we think about folks who need to be steady and amazing in the face of challenges, especially when you operate your products to your customers as opposed to just hand them and walk away, you need folks that have amazing soft skills. They have to be great uh, negotiators. They need to be great collaborators. They need to be great leaders. The technical skills, generally speaking, are things we can teach people. Knowledge they need about a domain are things we can teach people. So one of the things I look for in product managers, product leaders, is their ability to learn, their curiosity. I look for curiosity, I look for passion, look for those characteristics, because if they have them, then there there isn't much that they won't learn once they're presented with the opportunity. But it's really tough to teach people how to be curious. It's really tough to teach people how to be passionate. Like if you don't have that in you, you can be great, a great technical mind or have some knowledge in an area. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to learn a new area. In our world, it's changing fast. You know, just because you're an expert in one area doesn't mean that's what we need you to be an expert in tomorrow. So the soft skills are important. So you, you talked about hard and soft skills, technical skills, soft skills, but... Talk to me about building diverse product teams and how you grow them. So it's an important question. Uh, It's one that's getting the proper degree of attention today. Uh, And it has been getting a degree of attention for the last couple of years, uh, much more so than it ever had. 
but the notion of, of diversity is one that's now on the front burner. It's one that we can talk about in ways which we may not have been comfortable doing before. And, and I started probably about four, ah, five years ago, I started thinking about diversity in terms of uh, diversity of thought. You know, sometimes diversity is indexed on, you know, people's gender, orientations, ethnicity, so on. But I really thought about it in terms of getting people around the table that didn't all have the same groupthink, didn't all come from the same background or understanding. Turns out that in doing so, you end up addressing a lot of the traditional thoughts of diversity around gender, orientations, ethnicities. And what I found and have found my entire career since the beginning of my career as an engineer, that when you have a strong mix of people around the table, you simply end up with better thoughts. You end up with just points of view that just can't enter into your mind because it's not who you are. It's not your background. So we work really hard right now to do that. And so, you know, inclusivity uh, through diversity honestly leads to radical and disruptive innovation, where if you don't have a diverse population, you can often end up just arriving at the same old solutions over and over again. So talk to me a little bit about the challenges of building diverse teams. It's a huge challenge. You know, our industry, the tech industry specifically, is just so heavyweight with men specifically, but even within, you know, uh, male population, it's still pretty narrow in terms of who shows up at the door every day. So it became clear that for leaders like myself to start the flywheel, to start making change, you couldn't wait to who was going to show up at your door. You had to go and bang on doors. You had to become present. And it's, it's not a transaction. It's not an event. It really is a journey. You know, it's a personal journey, a professional journey that as you're making it, you, you get folks to come along the journey with you. So, you know, as example, this month, I'll be doing, uh, conducting a number of circles where people will, in this context, they'll video into the circle and we'll talk about how you go from being an engineer to being an engineering leader to being a business leader. And those circles are designed specifically for underrepresented populations to have access to somebody who is or has been lucky enough, if you would, to be successful in this business. And I want to share what I've learned over the last you know, 30 plus years with young minds, with young engineers and non-engineers so that they get excited about what we do. I and mean, what we do is exciting. It's fun. So how do I expose that excitement and fun to people and take away the concerns and fears they have of not having access or not being qualified. So Thanks. it's a journey. Thanks. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And I know we're, we're getting towards the end of the hour, but I wanted to touch really quickly on one thing and maybe not quite do it the justice we should, but something you mentioned a few times during your, your answers was product ops. Talk to me about that as an emerging role and why it's important for you in a product organization. Yeah, it's important because product management, product ownership is one of the most important roles in full ownership from, you know, the first thought, the first customer conversation around a problem they may have, uh, all the way through to understanding 
how your decisions affect your customers' lives every day and what they do, and how you can continuously iterate on making their experience simpler, better, uh, requires that you're immersed in what you do. You cannot simply look at one or two aspects of what it means to provide solutions or build products for companies or customers, but you have to live it. Um, and product ops provides a framework for product managers to understand what it means to fully own and live, if you would, under the bridge that they build for customers. And so that it's, it's terribly important. And it's not, it seems like common sense once you do it, but when product managers come into my group and come into the world that I help create, it's not always clear to them. You know, it's sometimes things that seem obvious take a few times to learn, but once they experience the full product ops role, there's no going back. Well, thanks. Thank you for that. Let's finish this up by talking a little bit about you, Wayne. Your favorite product. <laughs> can we ask about my favorite ice cream instead? I can, uh, that, uh, <laughs> we can that, answer uh, that too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually Earl Grey pistachio and strawberry jam all mixed together. It's amazing. Um, I won't put out any shout outs to the company name, but it's amazing. Um, my favorite products, it really depends. Uh, you know, it, it's a hard question because it is like a favorite food or a favorite color or your favorite music. You know, you have a lot of favorites. Um, it depends on your mood. But, you know, if I had to say why something becomes my favorite, you know, it simply brings me joy. You know, it brings me joy in my professional life and my personal life. Earlier, in, you know, in our conversation uh, when we weren't being recorded, I talked about a a device that I recently installed in my house that uh, in previous iterations, I would have had to use an application, do a lot of setting and, and a new version of this device, I was able to set down, plug in. And as I was getting ready to go through all of the standard things I used to do, the device simply came back and said it was ready. And it was, it just self-installed itself. That brought me complete joy. Every day for the last six months, I've been sitting at this desk working like a lot of us. And I have the simplest thing. I have a I have a teacup that was made in Japan and it's exquisite in the way it was done. It's the simplest thing in the world, but every day I drink coffee out of it brings me joy because it's the perfect cup. So I think, you know, it really is about whether the experience that you're providing your customers is easily consumed. It's natural. It's simple. And if it is, that's going to bring them joy because it's going to allow them to move on in their day or in their life doing what they intended to do versus wrestling with your product or, or trying to make something work. So right now it's an electronic speaker and a coffee cup. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you want to tell me the brand of coffee cup? I know I'm guessing the speaker's Sonos, but what about the coffee cup? I'm kind of interested. <laughs> it turns out it was this wonderful little coffee shack in Maine that I drove by and they had all these wonderful uh, cups that they imported from Japan. And they're just, it's Japanese uh, porcelain and the inside of the porcelain is the color of maple syrup, and it's all cracked, so it has a cracked look to it. So every single time you look in the cup, it just looks like maple syrup, and it makes, it makes me happy. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, so one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. Oh, oof, depends what you ask. Um, if you ask me, I'm pretty tenacious. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a dog on a bone. I'm pretty authentic, and by that I mean I'm honest. I believe in honest conversations. Uh, they're not always easy, but they always pay off. So I try to be super authentic with people. Sometimes it makes me sound like a car mechanic, but I'm okay with that. I like car mechanics. And 
I really care about people. I told you earlier in this, I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I love people. Um, I really care uh, that people are good, that they're fulfilled. I had a manager tell me once, uh, you know, I'm not here to make you happy. It's not my job. I can't do that. But he didn't tell me, he didn't follow that up with anything, which left me a little down, <laughs> uh, left me a little depressed in that moment. So I, I went off and I thought about it for years because I, I, I was really unhappy with that answer, but I, I agreed with him. Like, it wasn't his job. So I, I eventually got to the point where I stopped asking people if they were happy because it, didn't, it wasn't my job, but I, I do ask people if they're fulfilled because that is my job. My, you know, as a person, I want to create environments in which people can be fulfilled in what they do. So I care about people. I'm pretty tenacious about all of that. And I try to be super authentic every day in making all that happen. Awesome. Well, thank you, Wayne. It's been great having you on the podcast. It's been great speaking with you and um, take care of yourself. I look forward to a time in a not too distant future where we get to maybe lift one of those coffee cups together and, and, and have some coffee. Me too. Me too. All right. You take care.